Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 20. To the choir master, a Psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Psalm 20. Psalm 20, this is the last time for this year, Lord willing, if he tarries. Uh, we'll be back in the Psalms next summer. Next week, Adam's going to be picking up in the Gospel of John. But as you turn there, let's go ahead and pray. Father, all of us are like sheep who have gone astray. God, each one of us have turned willfully, joyfully away from you, and we have caused the iniquity, God. You have caused all of this iniquity to fall upon your son, the king. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but God, he did not open his mouth, and like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, God. Our king did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, your son was taken away. And God, it pleased you to crush him. To put him to grief, God. To render him as, as a guilt offering. But God, we stand here knowing and rejoicing by his wounds we are healed. So God, let us see the beauty of your son as the king. Not a king who has a carefree and troubleless life, but God, one who has endured everything for us. That we might worship you and that you might be glorified. God, let us see the beauty of your son, the king. Amen. Amen. Psalm 20. General Patton, four-star general, European theater, World War II, uh, he was a rather salty man, was he not? He wasn't a great orator like Churchill who, who, who pressed back the evil of the Third Reich by his words. But he had some really good lines. I had, kind of had, there was very few that I could actually read to you from here, but he said, I would rather have a German division in front of me than a French one behind me. So true. Well, what about courage, Patton? How, what do you think about courage? Courage, he said, is fear 
holding on for just a minute longer. Well, what do we do if we don't know what to do? He said, when in doubt, when in doubt, attack, attack. And the object of war, what are we doing here? Well, the object of, of war is not to die for your country, but to make sure the other man does. That's the object of war. But our family, our favorite quote from Patton happened like this. Patton was going, going by, and there's a soldier station here, and Patton's driving by him. He's got his star on the Jeep, and he drives by this soldier, and he stops. And the driver backs up a little bit. Patton turns around, gets out of his sheep, or out of his Jeep, and he barks at the soldier. Soldier, that is the best blankety-blanking salute I have ever seen. Rachel's grandfather says, and he says, what is your name? And Rachel's grandfather says, Sergeant William Hale, sir. And they salute each other. And just like that, just, almost just like that, the war was won, right? You have Pearl Harbor, D-Day, a fine salute, uh, V-E Day, victory in Europe, and the war is done. And the men, when, when they line up for inspection, sometimes they would, you would have this general before you. And this would happen with General Grant, the greatest of the Civil War generals, not even close. And they would line up, and they would have their inspection. And then after this, the men would begin to cheer for their general. And why would, why would you do that? What would compel you to do such a thing? When Grant would go back to Washington to meet with Stanton, the um, Secretary of War in the Civil War, people in the street would cheer for him. Why? It's because they knew his victory was their victory. His deliverance was their deliverance. And his salvation was their salvation. That's what would compel them to cheer for such men like that. And we have this royal psalm here. We have the same thing before us here in Psalm 20, this royal psalm. We've seen laments. We've seen psalms of praise, psalms of trusting, psalms of, of being thankful to what God has done. But now we have this royal psalm. As almost as one of the commentators wrote, a, a national anthem. When the king was girding and grinding his sword for the fight. But even, even as Nick's reading through it, even if you haven't read it before, before you realize there's something else going on here. Yes, David's the king and David wrote the psalm. What do you, does he want people to sing this to him? No, very quickly, you realize there's another king that's being sung to here. This isn't David that's being sung to. There's someone else that's being sung to. And obviously, that is Christ the King. So, we've spent most of the summer, that's how it happens, we spend most of the summer telling you the beauty of the Psalms, how they all point to Christ. And then I ramble on throughout the sermon. I look up and I realize it's 20 minutes after. I only have 10 minutes to wrap up what I'm saying, talk about how it points to Christ, give a little bit of application and pray before I got a, I'm summarily dismissed by 
by you checking your phones and looking at your watches, and that's okay. So, so what we're going to do, instead of telling a lot about David and the circumstance, we're going to kind of narrow that down and just let this flower of Christ bloom before us. That we could see, how does this point to Christ? What is the beauty of this? Entirely pointing towards Christ. So with that in mind, let's go to the text here. Verses 1, 2, and 3. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. I want you to see that Christ is king. Christ is king. And here you see... You have a king who is delivered from trouble. Luther, he regards this psalm as a shout of triumph and victory before the battle has even begun. A cry of, of joy and help before the help has even arrived. And here's the way it's translated. May the Lord, may the name of God of Jacob, may he send you. And it goes on and on and on. But I, I think, my grammar's okay, it's more of a, a future. Like, he will do it. It's not in doubt. The Lord will do this. There's no hesitation in this. There's, there's no wondering, pondering if it's actually going to happen. The Lord will do it to those who cry out to it. Notice the timing here of it all. It's in the day of trouble. They call out to the Lord. He's the only one you're going to call out to. But when does it happen? In the day of trouble. Not a moment before. Certainly not too late. But in the midst of trouble. When are you able to hear your children the best? It's when they're crying out to you. In their deepest distress, you, you hear them. That white noise, chatter, you just tune it out. But when they truly cry out to you in their distress, you know it and you hear it. Such it is with God and his eternal son. It goes on here. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And you see here that it is in the very nature of God that he will protect his children. He will hold them close. The reference here is from Genesis 30. Jacob's been on the run a little bit. Moses writes, Then let us arise and go to Bethel, so that, this is what Jacob's writing, or saying, so that I may make there an altar to God who, what? Who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So here you have Jacob, the son of a promise, who's sent away to live in a foreign land, and he is pulled, saved from the grip of death from his brother Esau, a figure of, of the serpent. So just as the father has watched over and delivered his son of the promise, Jacob, so too will he watch over his true son, Christ, 
the son of the promise in the day of distress. So the enemies are not removed so much, but then Christ is exalted over them in a beautiful way. So then it is obviously the the cry of the people. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. This is a complete trust. This is not chariots. This is not horses. This is not military strategy or artillery and tanks. No, that's not it. This is a a complete trust that God will act in line with his covenant faithfulness and with his covenant promises to his people who he has foreknown since the beginning of time, who he has set his affection upon and who he will love and bring to glory. Psalm 68, Sinai, the presence of God, this fiery presence of God that came down and shook the mountain. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Psalm 68 later on, awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. And the presence of God, you see in Exodus 25, you see that the presence of God Moses writes, and let them make me a sanctuary, God says, that I may dwell with them. The presence of God is there with them. How fitting. That God himself, God, the presence of God, would be the means by which the people of God are delivered. It's not outside aid or help, but himself is the very fount of deliverance. Verse 3, may he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Remember, this is a, a psalm. Originally, it would have been a psalm that they would have sung before battle. And it was quite common to offer a sacrifice to the Lord before the battle begun. Samuel did this several times. Second Samuel 7. So as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel 13 as well. But keep the, keep, keeping our eye on Christ, how do we understand this? As Christ is the king, his enthronement is like nothing else. His enthronement is not a throne. His enthronement is upon a cross. So let's go back a little bit just to kind of put this in a little bit more focus. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And then Matthew 26. And Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he began to become sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and, and watch with me. I'm, 
And going a little further, he fell on his face and he was praying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for the second time, he wept and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This is Christ the King calling upon the Lord in the day of trouble. And you will remember all of your offerings, as the psalmist write. And regard with favor all of your burnt sacrifices. And the soldiers from the governor took Jesus to the praetorium. And they put a, a scarlet robe on him and a crown of thorns and a reed in his right hands. And they knelt before, before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, hail, King of the Jews. They mock what you worship. It was true then, it's true now. Hail, King of the Jews. And they led him away to crucify him. And they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And when they crucified him, it's so subtle, so gruesome, but so subtle in the way they write it. And when they crucified him, they divided up his garments. And they put the charge above his head, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He saved others, they mock him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And from the sixth hour of darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour and in the ninth hour, Jesus Christ called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May he remember all of your, all of your offerings in regard with favor, your burnt sacrifices. This is what's happening. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Christ as king is a king who gives himself. Christ as king is a king who is the sacrifice. This, the fulfillment of this psalm in Christ as king is our only hope. You, what, you, you long for David to come back and Solomon? No, that's not what we want. I don't foolish of us to even be so short-sighted to want a political king now that can rule and reign over us. And give us some sort of deliverance. That's foolishness. We have one king. Christ Jesus. So we don't even long for our own sacrifices. Or the blood of bulls or goats to appease to the father. Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Writes. Still does his sacrifice. Still does his sacrifice. Perfume. Perfume the courts of heaven. Just this aroma of Christ in his sacrifice is still pleasing to God the Father. Some of you doubt the love of God. You really do. Never, never doubt the love of God that he would send his own son for you. Give up his own son. That you, he would pull you in so closely. He would give up his own son and pull you in so closely that you might worship him. That he would be glorified by your worship. And yet we stand here and doubt his love. 
What more could he give you? Nothing. You would stand between your children in any harm. Rightfully so. Yet God has given up his own son that you might believe and worship him and glorify him throughout eternity. This is Christ our King. It's a beautiful King. Okay, so we've seen Christ as King. I'm already running behind. Christ is King. He's, he's called out in the day of his trouble. He's been answered, and God answered him. He called out to God that he might be protected. And support and help did come from the sanctuary, from Mount Zion. And the Father did regard his sacrifices and was greatly pleased with his burnt offerings. Now, now we're going to see and move on from the, the trouble of this king unto the salvation of the king. Let's read verses 4 and 5. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your Christ. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of, the, of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So what's the desire of Christ as king? What is it? We just read it. Not my will, but your will be done. John, uh, John 5. I can do nothing in my own initiative, but only what I see the Father doing. And in the day, Luke writes, in the day of his ascension, as that, that was approaching, he was determined. He set his face towards Jerusalem. That is the will of the Son, to do the Father's will. Luke 12. I've come to cast fire on earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, which is his crucifixion. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He wanted to do the will of the Father. So the desire of Christ, it says here, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. He's, we're talking to the king. They're singing to the king, to Christ Jesus. That his heart's desire would be fulfilled. His desire is to be the means of salvation for you, for his people. That not one of them would be lost. That is his heart's desire. That in him you would have redemption through his blood. What is that? Well, it's the forgiveness of sins. That you would be made alive together with Christ. And it is his will that this saving message of the gospel would go to the very ends of the earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That is the will of, of Christ the King. To redeem his people. That's a good king. Some kings seek to enrich themselves. No. He emptied himself. He humbled himself, even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. That's the true king. And we 
when we read this psalm or pray this psalm or as we sung this psalm, we shout and rejoice over the salvation of Christ. We worship not a truth teller, someone who had great lines and little fables that you can maybe learn from and tell your children about. No, that's not it. That's not who we worship. We don't worship Muhammad who's still in the grave and dead. We don't worship Confucius, Buddha, nobody else. They're dead. We rejoice over the salvation of our king, the true king. Why? Because he was, he, was, he was raised from the grave. God did not leave him in the grave. Peter and John go running to the grave. John's John, he gets there, contemplates. Peter's Peter, he gets there. A little bit later, can't fault the guy for running slow. I have a kindred spirit of mine. And he gets there and just bursts right in. And they get in there. And then the angel asks them. They look around. They don't see anything. And the angel asks them, what are you doing here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. So yes, may we shout for joy over his salvation. Absolutely. That is the proper response of God's people. And that's what we do. That's the first thing you see him do. Go to the end of uh, Luke. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. It's the, the priests of old. And when he was blessing them, he departed from them and was carried up into heaven. And they... After worshiping him, right away, what's the first thing they do? They worship him. Worship Christ. And then return to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. What's the response of Christ, the king, going through trouble and being saved and delivered from death? The grip of death? What's the response? Of course. His deliverance is our deliverance. His salvation is our salvation. His life is our life. How could you not rejoice? How could you not praise this king? All right, so we've seen the trouble of the king. He's languishing and in anguish. And God delivered him for salvation. Because his heart's desire, again, was to deliver the people from their sins, to not leave them there. He's a good king. He leads his people to an eternal kingdom, not of spiritual slavery and impoverishment. And how does he do it? He gives it of his own life. That God the Father would remember all of his offerings and regard with favor his burnt sacrifices. That he himself is the king, that he himself is the offering as well. It's beautiful. But God didn't leave him there. God had more to do. God the Father raised him from the dead. And so then the people, as Patrick said, and throw themselves into this self-forgetful celebration of who Christ is and what he has done. 
But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. It's beautiful. It keeps going on. Not only do we worship and celebrate, but what, do we, what does it do to our hearts? If Christ is king, what does it do to our hearts? It makes us trust him all the much more. There's nothing else to trust. Let's go back to the text. Verse 6. Now I know. Now I know. See, the, the shift. Pronouns matter. They actually do. Pronouns matter. May the Lord. We're talking about the Lord and he and you. And then it's a we who celebrate. Now I know. This personal conviction. In which we can now enter the psalm. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed and he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some, come on, some, they trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, what do we trust in? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise up. We rise and stand upright. This glorious truth of Christ being raised out of the grave, it changes everything in your life. Change Peter from denying Christ three times to then joyously giving his life and being crucified upside down. You don't do that for someone who's dead. Your great uncle Fred who's still in the grave, you're not going to do that for him. Christ, our Messiah, perfectly did his Father's will. And in the midst of death, God saved him. Was Christ a fool? When did you hold Peter to put his sword away? Was he a fool? No. Was he mistaken when he didn't call upon his angels, legions upon legions of angels, to deliver him when they were about to arrest him or when this sham trial is going on? No, he wasn't mistaken. He was giving himself entirely into the will of God the Father. That's what he was doing. He was trusting Yahweh. He fully trusted in in the Lord, that God's eternal plan for redeeming His people, which is His desire, His will as well through Christ, to bring a people who would glorify Him that it wouldn't be thwarted, it wouldn't be undone at all. Even, even by His own death, it wouldn't be undone. Shall we not do the same? Brothers and sisters, shall we not do the same? And trust in Christ? Surely you can eat the apple and trust in chariots or partake of the fruit of the garden and trust in horses. But we will always trust in the Lord. Even, we will trust in the Lord even if we follow him to death. We will trust in our Messiah. For just as the Father raised him from the dead, so shall we too be raised from the dead. And just as Christ was ascended back up into the presence of God, seated forever at the right hand of God, so too will God's people be delivered out of their graves and raised up into the throne room of God to finally 
Finally, not sing to God and see this ugly screen, but sing to God and see him face to face. You can put all your trust and all your hope in that. Chariots and horses seem quite foolish in comparison to that. That's why it's not, it's not just the colony losing English who sing out, God save the king. It's all of God's people throughout all of time. We're crying out, God save the king. Christ the king, the alpha and the omega, the one who was and is and is to come, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who shall come and rule and reign over all his people and over all of creation forever. That is why we cry out, God save the king. So, what do we do? Number one, if Christ is king, how does it, what does this mean to you? Monday, when you go back to work. Christ is king. That means that Christ is king over all of your life. All of it. He gets all of it. He wants all of it. He gets all of it. How foolish would we be to withhold pockets of our own heart when God is giving us life? That's foolishness. Would you withhold devotion in areas of your, of your heart and your life from the one who loves you and rules and reigns over you? He's not, Christ is not some counselor. He's the king. He's not some counselor saying, I think maybe we should try this. Let's try that and see if it works. No! He's the king. And he wants sovereign control over all of your life and all of your heart. He wants all of your devotion and all of your affection. Everything. He wants it. And it's his. And he'll have it now. You can joyfully worship him now. Or you will bend your knee in hell and you will still worship him. And here's what happens. A lot of Christians think, if I could just give him, yes, I'll pray the prayer, or I'll have some sort of a belief in God or in Christ, and I think that'll be enough. But everything else, that's mine. You should examine your heart. If that is you, if you can have places in your own heart that you are continually, knowingly, not submitting to Christ as king, you're probably not a Christian. Christ is king. That means he is king over all of your heart and all of your life. And there's no way around it. Plead with Christ. Plead with him to conquer all of your life. Number one, Christ is king. That means he gets everything, all of your life, all of your heart and all of your affections. Number two, because Christ is king, you need to expand the horizons of what godliness actually is. So if Christ is king and he wants to redeem every aspect of your life, here's the trap we fall into. We just think it's godliness is contained in missionaries in martyrdom. And we think that's godliness, but we know Christ wants everything in our life. So what do we need to do? We need to expand our horizons of godliness.
we, we pray through Christ. So here, here's how you do the Psalms. Christ is the object of the psalm, and Christ is also the means by which it is applicable to us. So through Christ, we can actually pray, God, would you answer us in the day of trouble? And God, would you protect us? Would you, from your sanctuary, from Mount Zion, would you heed our call? Then we get to verse 4. May he grant you Look at this, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And we, we look at that and we go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Come on. That can't actually be true, right? Don't you know my own desires? Surely that can't be true. And you reformed Baptist, you, I know what you're doing. You, you have this, this feast of God's word before you, do you not? And you come up to the front of the line, you grab your plate, and you heap it full of Ephesians 1 and God's eternal decrees and Romans 8 and 9. You have a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. You know, the suffering servant throughout Isaiah. You love that. You'll eat that up. And then you come to a verse like this. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your plans. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this cream, this beautiful dessert right here before you. No, no, I couldn't. I must pass. Maybe that's for the, the Pentecostals or something. I'm sure they can enjoy this verse, but certainly not me. But no, it's true. And what we need to do is expand our horizons of godliness. What does it mean? In God's providence, he did not place you now, 3,000 years ago in a battlefield with David and fighting the Philistines. It's just, it's God's providence that you're here. So what's your battlefield? For many of you, the battlefield of godliness is your breakfast table. It really is. Like, how am, how am I going to, how am I going to conduct myself in such a godly way in the midst of all of this? And it's a real battle. Don't diminish it. And so we pray for you that your sword would prosper. That you would kill the sin within you in the midst of all of that. We pray for victory on the battlefield. We pray for victory in every aspect of our life. So yeah, that God would grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Just so you can make it through the day and stay sober. Yes, that's a beautiful thing. You don't have to be a missionary or a martyr to exercise some degree of godliness in your life. And as Christ is king, we give over every aspect to him. So may your sword prosper. May God save the king. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call to you and we know that you will answer us. As you have answered your son in the day of trouble, God. And you will not leave us. You will not forsake us, God. But let us also have hearts that rejoice over the salvation of your son, his deliverance over the grave, knowing and trusting that we too will be raised to come into your presence, God. So let us have hearts that do not trust in horses or in chariots or retirement 401ks or whatever it might be, God. Let us not trust in anything 
but you. And if we have to shed everything in our own lives, God, if we have to pluck out our own eyes to have full trust in you and every aspect of our life given to your son, Christ as king, may your spirit work in us to do that. God save the king. And all God's people said, amen.